0: And our chapter for today is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As we begin through chapter 8, we have to also look at chapter 9 because the two chapters together are one unit. Remember, I say this almost once a week, that there were no original chapter headings and no original verse divisions in the Koine Greek New Testament. And the reason is, is because these were letters that were written. They were not written in chapters. That was brought about so that we would have reference systems, so that we could say, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse so-and-so, so it would be easier to find. But in doing so, sometimes we take away from the fluidity and the consistency and the continuation and the flow of the writer's viewpoint. So Paul is wanting to encourage these Corinthians to do what they had promised to do a full year previously. And he was using them as an example to encourage the other churches. Now, what was the situation in the context for this? The church at Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. Drought had come in to that area. The church was undergoing great persecution during this era as Rome began to shift its emphasis away from leniency and toward persecuting the church of Jesus. Remember, it was not too long after this until the Jewish uprising in 67 AD really brought in the forces of Rome, the legions of Rome, which ended up destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD. It actually Started before that, but it started in earnest in 67 as far as the Romans were concerned. And so the church had fallen on hard times, and Paul was trying to help them. And remember, he had already told the Romans that we needed to help the Jewish people. Why? Because without them, we would not be spiritually where we are today. And it's a small thing to ask material and financial blessings to those who had helped so much and given us everything we are. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. We are now in over 60 nations with this podcast 2,300 cities worldwide, and I can tell you wherever the gospel goes out, wherever this podcast goes out, it would not happen unless God had sent the gospel out from Jerusalem. So we owe the Jews a great debt, not only for the scriptures, not only for Messiah, not only for the great work that happened at Pentecost, but for the first eight to 10 years, there were nothing and no one but Jewish people in the church of Jesus. And from the Jews and Jerusalem sounded out the gospel around the world. And so we owe the Jewish people a great debt. Paul picked up on this and said, we want to help them. So this had started small, but it was not small any longer. As a matter of fact, they had great accountability because the money was so great and the treasury so great from these churches as they were willing to help, willing to help the church at Jerusalem would to God that the churches in the West The churches in Africa, the churches in South America and Central America, and certainly in the United States of America, would somehow see that it's better to love one another than to fight and scrap and to hate one another and to be belligerent toward one another. This is not the way we get the gospel of Jesus out to the people. And so we have to confront sin, yes. We have to deal with sin, yes. But we don't have to be ugly to one another in the process. And so... Paul is saying, moreover, brethren, we make known unto you the grace of God bestowed on the churches in Macedonia. Now, as Paul used the Corinthians to stir up the Macedonians and others, so now he is using the great generosity of the churches of Macedonia, which was Philippi, the center of everything there, and all the churches in that region. That in great affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. You see, the churches at Macedonia, especially Philippi, they didn't have wealthy people there. Remember, this was a government town. It was a colony of Rome. I'm talking about Philippi. And these Macedonians were in a city that was an area and a region of haves and have-nots. It was a government city. And just like in Washington, D.C., just like in any major state capital, you have a lot of government workers that are paid good wages. They are paid good benefits. They are stable in their workforce. And so no matter what happens, they're going to get paid as long as the government is taxing and charging fees to the people, which is always and always going up. Cost of living goes up, then government workers Workers get that, but then there is an entire group of people that fall through the cracks. And so many times in a government city that's dominated by government or the capital of any state or whatever the case is, you're going to have a huge gap between those who are wealthy and work for the government and the ancillary businesses that are associated with that, that feed off the government. And then you have the have nots. And so this is what the case was. These people that were being saved, many of them that became followers of Jesus didn't have a lot of money, but they were not stingy and they were giving more than others, even though they didn't have much. They were giving not out of their leftovers, not out of their expendable income. They were giving out of their need. In other words, they were doing without something to give. Let me ask you a question. Are you doing without essentials? in order to give? Are you doing without meals in order to give? Are you doing without vacations in order to give? Are you doing without? You see, this is where the shoe leather meets the road. This is what was happening in Macedonia. You say, well, you don't have to do that in order to be followers of Jesus. No, you don't unless God puts that on your heart. But what you do have to do is certainly tithe. What you do need to do is certainly give beyond that as God blesses, But you see, we know the stats now in the evangelical churches of America, less than two and ten tithe, and that's 10% of your income, less than 2%. And if indeed that few are tithing, how many fewer are giving above and beyond? We're talking about a 10%. So that means that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of God's people are not even given 10% of their income. They're giving less. You see, this idea of grace giving, quote, never works. Well, I say never. Every now and then you'll have someone that will go over and above, but rarely in proportion to the population. Why? Why? I'm talking about the population of the church, of followers of Jesus, people who claim to be sold out to Jesus. You know why? Because our treasure is not in heaven. Our treasure is not being given to godly things, and given rather many times to ungodly things or to just build our own barns bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, look, these people that you once inspired to give, now they're giving on a ratio far more than you are. Why? Because the Corinthians were very wealthy. They weren't doing without anything. They weren't giving out of their need. They were giving out of just what they had left over. He said in verse three, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, their capability, they freely, willingly gave and they were begging us with much urgency that we would receive the gift so that they could have a partnership so that they could do the ministry to the saints in Jerusalem. Isn't this amazing? They were begging, Paul, please let us have fellowship in this. You see, we're losing the sense of partnering with other believers worldwide. We are losing the sense of partnering with believers that are in other states. We are losing the sense of partnering with people in our own towns and communities and areas. It is like we've got to have people in our church. We don't want to be involved in anything that doesn't make our church grow. And we're more concerned about our four and no more than we are building the kingdom of God and doing what's best for the kingdom of God. You say, well, the churches have to grow. Let me ask you a question. Who turns the spigot on and who turns it off? Who's the one that brings people to your church and who doesn't? it? is it that gives your witness power and authority? Who is it that uses your witness and mine to bring people to Jesus? They don't belong to us. They belong to Jesus. And I have been a proponent now for decades that when you bring somebody to Jesus, if indeed They are able to come to your church fine, but not everybody's going to be able to. Other people have already fellowship groups, already established. You say, well, why didn't they witness to them? Because they may have witnessed to them, but many times God will use somebody outside the family. Many times God will use somebody outside the church. Sometimes God will use somebody outside of their acquaintances so that they will listen to them. And every one of us have had instances like this. I used to say this about my own kids. It was amazing. I could tell my boys and my daughter, this is what I'd like for you to do. And it was like talking to a wall at times. And then a youth pastor or another pastor, or they could go to another church visiting and they would come back. And the very thing I had been talking to them about, all of a sudden they heard someone else say it and they come in and say, dad, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm thinking, wow, what am I a chop liver? But the reality is many times God will use somebody outside of our immediate circle of friends to get us to Him. Well, sometimes that means that God will build someone else's congregation. God will send people somewhere else. Is that okay? Yes. Because that's his business. It's not ours. It's his church. It's not ours. And if we would be more interested in building the kingdom of God than our own churches, it's amazing how God will build the church that you're associated with. Because, you see, God sees the heart. He sees it all. So Paul said to these Corinthians, listen, these people in Macedonia are just so begging us to let them have part in this, that they're giving over and above what they even have the ability to do. I mean, they're doing without so they can give because they want to have a partnership, a fellowship of serving the saints of Jerusalem. And he said in verse 5, and not only did they do this as we had expected and hoped and desired them to do, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Ah, boy, let me read that again. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So he said, so we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, remember, they were so talented. They had great gifts of faith, of speech, of knowledge. He said, you are diligent in all things and in your love. He said, you are a great congregation. See that you abound in this grace also. What grace? The grace of giving of being generous. God loves it when we're generous. And so he said, be generous in our speech, be generous in our actions, be generous with our money. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, don't get all spiritual and say, well, my treasure." No, your treasure is your money. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about. In context, he was talking about money. In reality, he was talking about money. You see, where we put our money says a whole lot about where our heart is. And where we put our money, that's where our heart will be. You see it all the time with people, and so it is with the church of Jesus. Now, he said, I'm going to speak to you not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. What he's saying is I'm just using these people as an example to not command you to do something, but to encourage you willingly to give. See, this is the heart. God loves a hilarious giver. That's what the word cheerful means. It's the Greek word hilarion. Just keep reading in chapter 8 and chapter 9. God loves a person who gives hilariously. And so he said, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had it all. Yet for Your sakes, for our sakes, he became poor, that we, through his poverty, we might become rich. And so he said, I'm wanting to give this to you as advice. And I want to encourage you that what you started, I mean, you were the first that said, we want to give. Now get ready because you're going to get the opportunity to do that and follow through with what you said to do. Then he goes on to talk about Titus and how he was sending Titus and that they could trust what Titus was doing. All of those things, and then he said in verse twenty-two, "And we assent with them, our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you." And then he talks about Titus and says, "Look." We are doing this in a way that's open and above board, and we're doing everything we can to make sure that people understand that those who give are going to receive God's very best. It was the Macedonians that first, according to Philippians chapter four, it was the Macedonians that first sent Paul out on his journey from Philippi. Now these were people, it wasn't Jewish people altogether, it was Gentiles as well. There were not even enough Jews in Philippi to even have a synagogue. You have to have at least 10 men to have a synagogue and have a minion. And so the women were just meeting out by a river. That's how Lydia got saved. And so what I'm saying to you is Paul is using these people as an example, as a goad, as an incentive to do well when they see others doing well. You see, when we follow through and give what God has blessed us with and we are good stewards of what God has blessed us with, It's amazing how God will encourage us, give us joy, give us peace, give us fruit for our labor. Read chapter 9. I know it's not on our list, but read chapter 9. Just as soon as you listen and finish this podcast, just read chapter 9. It will blow you away. And I would encourage you to read these two chapters in a version like the New Living Translation. Because if you read it in the New Living Translation, which is a dynamic translation, not specifically an exegetical word-for-word translation, what people would many say a literal translation, it's a dynamic translation, and it is very good. And it is the Word of God and the words of God. And you will see just reading the New Living Translation, chapter 8 and chapter 9. I hope you do that, and it will bless you as you walk on the way. This is Tony Chris.